It's six o'clock. Log Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And this is Thursday, March 24th, 2016. Welcome to an extended show that will run 45 minutes tonight, I hope. We're having some pretty big electrical storms right here in Broward County. So if the show ends up being uh, ended prematurely, it's because the power is out and our backup did not kick in in time. And tonight we have my friend Charles Marshall back to talk about a number of new decisions and breakthroughs that we're seeing in the judicial system. He is joined by my friend Dan Edstrom, a senior forensic analyst for Living Lives, and it, uh, uh, Jim Macklin, who uh, I would have liked to have had on the show, is working against some deadlines and is unable to attend. In the news are a series of case decisions that heavily favor homeowners and borrowers. And we'll get to Ivanova uh, in a moment. Finally, we have judges expressing skepticism and displeasure with the antics of banks and servicers seeking to foreclose on the illusion of mortgage loans that should never have been attempted to begin with. In one case, just decided, I think, this week, the judge playfully articulated a comparison with fictional characters from fairy tales, a concept I promoted back in 2007. And one uh, uh, part of his decision, he refers to Humpty Dumpty, and how all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And his answer to that is Humpty should never have been on the wall to begin with. There's a judge who is getting very close to the truth. The answer back from the politicians with their hands on the levers of power back in 2007 was that even if I was right, they couldn't allow the mortgages and the mortgage bonds to fail. The burden was put squarely on homeowners who were pushed and tricked into deals that had to fail. The attitude back then was that if we let the banks suffer the consequences of their own illegal actions, it would undermine the financial system, actually crush it and thus undermine the economy, 
crushing that, which in turn would lead to society dissolving. A very scary proposition that turned out to be based entirely on false presumptions accepted by people in government who were ignorant in the ways that Wall Street works. And Dan Edstrom forwarded to me a very important article published by the Yale Law Review that takes dead aim at the free house myth. I haven't read it closely yet. I just got it today. But it appears to blast the judicial system for adopting a simplistic view of adhering to a rule of anything but a free house instead of the rule of law. They point out that in virtually all cases, the homeowner has paid substantially for the home, and in some cases entirely, in down payments, improvements, furnishings, monthly payments, etc. In the end, the uh, authors of the Yale Law Review article conclude that all those millions of decisions were not saving the economy after all. They were undermining the very essence of free market forces and undermining the rule of law, allowing the chips to fall where they may when applying existing law is the only way we're going to really recover from the bank-made recession that still weakens and still threatens our economy and thus our society. Let's remember that neither the banks nor the servicers have any interest in acquiring the house. They abandon that all too often. And to top it off, they really have no interest in getting payment from the borrower. What they want is a foreclosure judgment in a judicial state and a foreclosure sale in both judicial and non-judicial states. That's what allows them to steal the rest of the money that they've already taken from investors. And I want to remind you, as we stated last week, if you are involved in any negotiations that involve mediation, modification, or settlement, make sure you read every word and please consult an attorney. Watch out for those hidden balloon payments that are 20, 30, or even 40 years down the road. They will come up a lot faster when you go to sell or refinance the property in one or two years. Tonight, we take note of an increasing number of judges who have gone far beyond skeptical over the claims of banks and servicers, starting with the origination of the so-called loans and ending with the lax compliance with civil procedure in a matter that is the civil equivalent of the death penalty. More and more courts are starting to remember that the loss of one's home is the ultimate loss that uh, such a consumer can have. It's the uh, it's a draconian remedy, and judges are clearly tired of hearing excuses from the banks why they can't get their facts and documents straight. These judges, ever increasing in number by the week now, are becoming increasingly hostile to the attorneys for banks and servicers and at best doubtful of the creating of the loans with terms that are clear from the face could never be paid. We will look at Ivanova, the California Supreme Court case again, 
and dig deeper tonight. And we'll look at the at the uh, Justice Rubin dissent that spells out the truth that a new industry has been born in California and some other states. It's spreading already. People who don't know one thing about the transaction and don't care can dig up information on a debt, send a notice to the debtor, sue the debtor, and now under precedent in a number of states that has been particularly strong in California, the debtor, the consumer, cannot challenge the thief who gets the judgment, collects the money, and then leaves the debtor and the real creditor to fight it out or leaves the real creditor left dangling in the wind with a potential cause of action against a fly-by-night entity whose sole purpose was to divert legal debts from the legal creditor to themselves. They're thieves. But they're able to do that because that's what the banks have been permitted to do. Even over and other cases are starting to address this, but it's too late. The industry of steal the debt and enforce it has already begun. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 954-495-9867 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. And, of course, if you're looking for active assistance in rescission, litigation, modification, mediation, or settlement, then you can call our numbers, schedule a consult, which now is automated, uh, a review, or whatever other services or litigation support your attorney might need. We uh, uh, provide those services uh, directed to attorneys. To some extent, we provide reports that are for pro se litigants. After nearly 10 years of doing this, we have been able to provide a lot of assistance to a lot of people. There are thousands of people who, using the free information off the blog, have been able to save their homes, and they're still in it. Living Lies, with 11 million visits, is the number one place on the Internet to get information, forms, facts, and opinions from a variety of sources on foreclosure defense, foreclosure offense, consumer loans, rescission, and we're now starting to look at student loans. Our mission is to share as much free information, like now, as much free information as we can to help homeowners and other consumers who find that in addition to the house, car, or TV that they knew they were buying, they also bought a very complicated financial product that put them in jeopardy. And we're succeeding. More and more lawyers across the country are smelling blood in the water, and they're filing and winning cases as they realize that there is a winning strategy in both foreclosure defense, rescission, 
and a whole variety of other strategies. There is gold in those so-called bank errors that I have said from the beginning were intentional. I know how they work. Long ago, I was one of them. That is to say, I worked on Wall Street as an investment banker. And lastly, let me remind my listeners here that nothing stops a foreclosure except a court order. Do not even listen to somebody who says that they can stop it with something else. It does, that does not exist. No letter, pleading, or anything else will stop the foreclosure from proceeding or stop the forced sale of the property. In bankruptcy, of course, that order is automatically issued as soon as the bankruptcy is filed. Charles Marshall is an attorney with offices in San Diego County, a satellite office in San Jose, and offices uh, or office space in Northern California and the Tahoe area. He has clients throughout California and he practices in all four federal California districts and currently has a half dozen cases pending with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals um, and has many lawsuits moving forward as well. Uh, he handles all aspects of, of foreclosure-related cases and um, and defense lawsuits uh, uh, from the usual suspects of Chase, Wells Fargo, City, Bank of America, etc. And uh, uh, he's been coordinating his efforts with Dan Edstrom and Jim Macklin. Dan is the senior forensic analyst for Living Lives. So let's turn, guys, well, First of all, welcome, Dan, and welcome, Charles, to the show again. Yes, good to be on the show today, uh, Neil. Charles here. Yep. All right. So, Dan, why don't you give us a rundown of your take on the substantive analysis of the Ivanova decision, and we'll go from there. Okay. The Ivanova um, decision uh, basically wrapped around uh, the validity of the foreclosure process and wrongful foreclosure and the ability to raise that issue after the trustee's sale. And one of the things the court said, uh, the, the, the California Supreme Court said, was that the trustee starts the non-judicial foreclosure process by recording a notice of default and election to sell. And so um, that's right from the civil code. And so it's a notice. And the non-judicial states, um, the entire foreclosure process is based on notice. And you are entitled as a homeowner to notice before your house is is, um, sold. And the court worked very hard to try to limit the issue to post-foreclosure and or post sale and um specifically to the issues you know brought up in the Ivanova case and you know my guess is that that's due to you know the bank the bank's going crazy and filing issues with you know being able to stand in before that before the sale happens and try to preempt the sale by by filing litigation 
eventually, I believe, those issues are going to be resolved. And jumping over to the Lundy case, Lundy versus Celine Finance, the court um, basically asked for a stay pending an appeal of, of, a, of a case that was going to address that issue. And, of course, um, the bank wanted to go forward, so they um, um, objected to the, to the stay. And so the court basically went through a very long, detailed analysis of the Ivanova decision and what they believe will happen to a case where the home has not sold yet. And the, basically, the, this was a federal district judge, and his, his analysis was that the same issues will apply uh, pre, pre-foreclosure sale. And uh, I, I believe that's, I, that – sorry, go ahead. I think it's interesting that the Ivanova court took great pains to say that it it wasn't deciding this and that we're not deciding that and all that. But we are saying that if the foreclosure was based on a void assignment, then it's a wrongful foreclosure and damages can be presumed. And so – the, it, it's leaving open theoretically the argument that uh, it doesn't apply to cases in which the sale has not already taken place. But but wrong is wrong, right? Right, that's correct. And so that's basically what the federal district judge said: is that when you look at these issues and and the reasons why that she has standing to allege um, the assignment is void, those same issues will apply on the other side, and the court believes that the California Supreme Court will decide the same way. And I, I think that's interesting. Yeah, I think yeah, that's a lot of interesting. Sorry, the interesting thing about this is that one of the issues that's been, I think, difficult for homeowners and attorneys to raise is that because of securitization and how complex the, these issues are, and they're spread across so many laws and statutes and issues that it's difficult to raise all of them. And, you know, what's very clear is that in California, you had the ability to challenge the foreclosure sale pre-foreclosure for a long time, and there's plenty of case law that has that, where trustees say basically homeowners have been granted wrongful foreclosure um, claims um, at trial or through summary judgment, you know, previous to Ivanova, um, from cases like, uh, what did we have? City of Los Angeles versus Morgan, Tom Zach v. Ortega, Wolf versus Lipsy. You know, there's a whole bunch of them that have already done, already gone through those issues, and mostly they're centered around the fact that you can record any document you want, but only valid documents are allowed to be recorded and give notice. If an invalid document is recorded, it doesn't give notice to anybody. Right, void is void. Charles, right. uh, one of the, one of the things that I've always harped on in the non-judicial states is that procedurally, the time to make your first challenge might be when you get notice of substitution of trustee. Be, using the Ivanova logic, it would appear to me that the so-called substitution of trustee is what allows them to go forward because the original trustee wouldn't go for it without knowing for sure that the beneficiary was really the beneficiary or the new beneficiary. 
So I wonder if you would address that and the other procedural aspects of the Ivanova case. Oh, sure, Neil. Um, when it comes to the substitutions of trustee and the vast majority of cases, a notice of default is filed within, well, weeks, you know, at a maximum typically. Uh, I would say in many cases, and this might even be, you know, the great majority of cases, the notice of default is filed within a number of days of the substitution of trustee. Sometimes they're actually filed, these notices of default, virtually concurrently with the substitutions of trustee. And the reason for that is, you know, in California, like other non-judicial foreclosure states, when you bring a property to sale, you have to substitute in a completely separate entity, you know, who's, who's presumed to have clean hands, who's presumed to have, you know, a sort of disinterest in the overall legal matter. So whoever is essentially supposed to be acting on behalf of the beneficiary, that entity, you know, which is oftentimes it's the servicer, sometimes the servicer purports to be the beneficiary, but in any case, whoever the entity driving this whole process is, they will substitute in a sales trustee, and that's literally a legal entity who is empowered to bring the property to sale on behalf of the beneficiary. So in the real world, once you see that substitution of trustee, you know, which you had just mentioned, Neil, you will see a notice of default following, you know, sometimes in a very close time period, you know, Sometimes it'll be weeks, but it's rarely something like months. And so I think as a practical matter, what the appellate panel decided um, as to when, you know, foreclosure analysis kicks in, because Dan's absolutely right that it kicks in at the time of a recording of notice of default. And I understand your reasoning, Neil. I mean, one can argue that it really kicks in at the time of the substitution of trustee. Um, because the substitutions of trustee, I mean, these trustees are known. They're known throughout the foreclosure community. So in virtually every case, you're going to see the party substituting in as the sales trustee. I mean, that's what they are, and that's what they'll be doing. Um, so I think we can push that that angle. I mean, it's it's not a big separation between the substitution of a trustee and the actual recording of a notice of default. What I think the Ivanova decision limits, and in a sense this has clarified the law, the Ivanova panel makes a big deal about, you know, disclaiming completely pre-foreclosure lawsuits, meaning, you know, you're current, you're close to current, you're months away from any potential notice of default, you're not even behind or you're only a little bit behind in payments. The court is saying, you know, we're not going to entertain your matter. I mean, that is that is what they're saying. You know, they're, they're disfavoring preemptive suits, as they call them. So I think that's the one kind of negative coming out of Ivanova for borrowers, and they really have to register this, particularly in California. You know, I have gotten some settlements in, in cases previously where borrowers were current because the law was really unsettled in that area. Now I think the law more clearly disfavors, you know, borrowers, homeowners who are current. On the other hand, 
anytime you're coming into a notice of default situation, uh, that is a real triggering event that, you know, as, as both you, Neil, and also Dan was saying, does mean that the foreclosure process is triggered. And, you know, and, and Lundy, which is a case, you know, it's one of my cases, in a, and I've coordinated this, you know, at a very high level with both with both Dan and Jim Macklin. Uh, that particular case, the the judge there basically held very recently, you know, this isn't a, a case-ending holding. It's just a preliminary holding in terms of where the case is at procedurally. But he held that wrongful foreclosure should go through. He actually preliminarily stayed the case, and he decided not to stay the case. But actually, the result of where we're at now, this case is better off not being stayed because four of nine causes of action have gone through past the motion to dismiss. You know, there were multiple motions filed. And now wrongful foreclosure is going to trial unless it can be shut down on something like motion for summary judgment, which I think is highly unlikely. I mean, one of the judge's bases for letting wrongful foreclosure go through is because there is a kind of Ivanova companion case out there, and it's called Kashgar versus U.S. Bank. It's on review right now. In fact, its oral argument schedule was was tended contingent on Ivanova. Now that Ivanova has gone down and has turned out to be a very pro-borrower case, Kashgar, which is explicitly a pre-foreclosure case, post-NOD but pre-auction. So this is all very much in alignment right now um, for California homeowners. I mean, this has been a dramatic change. My take on what the Ivanova court was doing is looking at the broader view. I think they are backing into uh, a position where they're going to have to allow the preemptive cases because first they're saying, okay, the sale has occurred and if it was based on a void assignment, that's wrong and that's a wrongful foreclosure and the homeowner is entitled to damages, um, uh, economic damages, uh, virtually automatically. If it's wrong, then pre-sale but post-notice of default, it would seem very twisted logic to say that even though it's wrong after the event, it's not wrong before the event. So I think the next decision is going to be, as you've said, that uh, a challenge to an existing foreclosure that's been initiated by a so-called beneficiary under a void assignment is clearly, uh, in my mind, going to be decided in favor of the homeowner to stop the foreclosure altogether. But I think once you get to that point, the preemptive lawsuit that that a lot of people have filed and more want to, that, hey, I've sent my qualified written request, I've sent my debt validation letter, and I still don't know who the real party and in interest is that's the beneficiary or that meets the dem definition of a beneficiary, 
And this uh, so-called assignment is void for a variety of reasons, at which point they can litigate that leading to the point where uh, uh, the assignment and maybe the mortgage itself is declared void. But I think they are attempting to limit and not open the floodgates of litigation for people to pile on to that until they have no choice. So that's just my take of it. But eventually, I think we'll get there. Oh, and I so, feel following up on that, I, yeah. I would say that I do believe that we may only be months away from a scenario where pre-foreclosure, pre-NOD cases will be seriously entertained. And it's it's partly for the reasons you just related. I mean, one of the things that's most powerful about Ivanova is that the decision clearly lays out, I should say, you know, essentially annihilates two of the bugaboos that would always come from the defense side. Oh, it doesn't matter who you're paying. Uh, you're, you're in default anyway. So who cares? I mean, one of the reasons this case went through the way it did is because Kamala Harris, the Attorney General for California, filed a very compelling brief, and it it part of it highlighted exactly what you were talking about earlier, which is there's a cottage industry in California and other non-foreclosure case states where, you know, ne'er-do-well organizations, small-time organizations that are bringing in big money will, in a very predatory life, create real false documents to take, you know, someone's property, and they were never connected to the original transaction, and they were never even brought in, albeit, you know, fraudulently in, in, in the way that so many uh, securitized trusts were brought in. But but nevertheless, we're talking about people who literally are a complete stranger to the loan. And that's happened in California. It's happening in California, and it's one of the reasons this decision went down the way it did is because the court recognized that, of course, it matters it, from basic Contract Law 101, it, it matters very much who you're paying and that you're paying the right party. The other bugaboo that they got rid of, in this case, the appellate panel in Ivanova, was, of course, it matters if you lose your house. I mean, the other side would always argue, well, there's no real harm here. If, if you lose your house, as, as you, Neil, were saying earlier, you know, other than being subjected to a huge violent crime of some kind, that's one of the most traumatizing things that could ever happen to anyone. And the court recognizes that. So they've absolutely set up the architecture for not just the pre, you know, uh, the post-NOD cases to go through. They've set up the architecture, as you mentioned, for the pre, pre-NOD cases to go through as well. That will take a little longer, but I think it's coming. Right, I agree. Well, that kind of segues well into my next question for Dan. Um, Dan, why don't you, uh, uh, in the Jeffrey Pang versus Chase Home Finance case, uh, the dissent of uh, uh, Justice Rubin, uh, I thought was a very forthright, clear way of expressing the problem with actually the majority of the of the court who was deciding against the borrower. But he, I think, I think he, he he identified the essential problems with their holding. Um, can you go? Can you talk about the uh, that case and specifically uh, Ruben's dissent? 
<laughs> uh, I'd like to, but and, I actually haven't made it to the, to that case yet. Ah, okay. Well, um, Charles, have you have you read that case yet? Um, I have, and you know the thing that most strikes me about it is, is it really, and, and it's a much more clean and clear way both anticipates and makes the arguments that show up in Ivanova. And it and it makes the arguments without the disclaimers. There really is so partly this is because it's a dissent. And procedurally if you're doing a dissent in an appellate matter, it's you know, you you can still sort of carve out the contours of where you see the your position being limited. But generally, that's something you see much more on the majority side, meaning in a majority opinion, you will always see the boundaries of the decision, where the judges want lawyers and, and those subject to the decisions to think about where this case is going to be headed, you know, a future case based on this, this holding. Here in the dissent, I mean, Rubin is very clear that it matters tremendously who you pay uh, your mortgage to that you must have proper documentation as the servicer precisely because there's a non-judicial foreclosure statute. I mean, I think he emphasizes that even more than the even other court does. He, he very much highlights the fact that in a non-judicial foreclosure state like California, that is the remedy available. And yes, it's meant to be a sort of summary uh, remedy but precisely because of that, you should hold the benefactor of that remedy. You should hold these servicers to a pretty high standard and a pretty high showing. They have to be able to come into court. They have to be able to present in litigation if they're subject, subject to litigation, that they have the bona fides, that they really do control and hold the note and the deed, that they really have um, you know, gotten to the place they're at without, you know, robo-signing and front-dated assignments and back-dated assignments. I mean, he goes into a number of different scenarios for how these types of frauds are committed. And at the end of the day, you know, he makes a very strong showing for why something like Ivanova would happen. I mean, I, I think he both anticipated and pushed along a decision like Ivanova eventually happening, and, and, it, and it's not coincidental, by the way, that both these decisions came out of the um, appellate decision and, and uh, appellate courts in, in Los Angeles, you know, albeit his decision was a second appellate decision where he dissented, and that ultimately did not end up at the California Supreme Court. But, you know, the Ivanova decision was argued, and it and it did involve a Los Angeles property. And the other thing that's compelling about Ivanova even going back to the Tang matter, you know, where Ruben dissented, both of these come out of Los Angeles, which is the center of kind of pro-lender, anti-borrower sentiment. I mean, to get these, you know, results, even though Tang was a dissent, to get to get that result two years ago and now to get the real win in Ivanova out of Los Angeles, I mean, that's the belly of the beast and foreclosure, uh, in the foreclosure world in California, so that's a very big deal. I thought it was interesting how Ruben expressed outright what other courts are just hinting at, 
which is this new industry of, of in a way, stealing debts, and again, you're dealing with an unsuspecting uh, person who owes money for whatever the debt is, a credit card, a foreclosure, I mean a mortgage, or whatever. And because the whole situation is so confused, the person sitting at home who gets some notice in the mail that says, you know, I'm ABC Corp and uh, your uh, debt from American Express has been transferred to me for collection. Uh, with the new servicer of the debt. And while some people might, you know, wonder whether or not that's true, a lot of people are just going to go along with it because they know they owe the money and they don't care. Well, what difference does it make who I pay? And uh, uh, what Ruben addressed was exactly that issue saying that, you know, they were opening, they weren't just opening the door to moral hazard, they were opening the door to a new industry. And Absolutely, I that, and I think it's, just real quickly, I think it's safe to say that Kamala Harris read his dissent when she put into her friend of the court brief on behalf of the Ivanova plaintiff. When I Kamala agree. Harris put in all of her analysis about real predatory groups going out there and, you know, just flim-flamming people, there's no question that the paying dissent is something that she reviewed in connection with that. So, Charles, what are the current um, causes of action that you see as getting traction now? Well, I can tell you that when I have wrongful foreclosure and I have been using it as a, you know, pre- pre-auction, post-NOD remedy. I've even used it in some cases pre-NOD. But certainly post-NOD, uh, pre-auction, I'm already getting traction with that. You know, that is the next leading edge into what we're doing here in California. And so that cause of action pre-foreclosure, which was getting shut down routinely, I mean, Northern District, pockets of Northern California, places like um, San Mateo County, you know, you could, you could, you had a reasonable shot in San Mateo County of getting wrongful foreclosure to go, to go through as a cause of action. Uh, even let's say a year ago, if you were uh, pre-auction, but in in L.A. or Orange County, no. I mean, in L.A. and Orange County, a year ago, you were never going to see wrongful foreclosure as a pre. I'm not saying you know it, it never happened anywhere, but it was very unusual. Now you're seeing that. I'm seeing that in some of my cases. I mean, I've. I've got a caseload such that, you know, I've got pending hearings in any given week, every week, and February 18th was barely more than a month ago. I've already had a half a dozen cases come up for various, you know, potentially case-terminating hearings, demurs at the state level, motions to dismiss at the federal, and almost all of them have gone through, and normally maybe one or two would have gone through. So this is already a dramatic change. And the other thing that I'm doing is, you know, because of the brain trust I have and coordinating my cases with Dan and Jim, you know, I'm able to bring causes of action that, frankly, you won't see any other foreclosure attorneys bringing. I mean, intentional misrepresentation is one example. 
Um, we've also been making some real headway with intentional interference with contract. I've, and, I've uh, heard about Yes. Getting into the details there, of that in the show, I think, is beyond our scope right now, but I will tell you that we are making headway. I've had several cases already since the beginning of the year that have gone forward on that cause of action, and that's a really big deal. Because the other side, you know, look, we are so well positioned as as plaintiff's attorneys, and, you know, all the borrowers in California need to hear this. Um, it's such a big deal because the other side has just been recycling the same stuff based on Fontenot, based on Gomes, based on Jenkins. All these cases have been disavowed because of Ivanova. They've got to go completely back to the drawing board, and now we're hitting them with new causes of action. I mean, I mean, frankly, Neil, they are on their heels. You know, I haven't seen this to this extent before, and it's a very positive development, and I'm going to continue to exploit it on behalf of my clients as much as I possibly can. Well, I think you're doing well, a lot there's, for there's, um, not only your clients but for everyone in uh, in pushing the the edge here. There's no question that we have turned a corner, that judges are getting increasingly uncomfortable with the uh, rule of anything but a free house for the homeowner, uh, uh, even if that means not uh, ruling in accordance with existing law. I think that what we have, what we're seeing is the long-awaited turn uh, where the court system gets back to business. And I think that there are, there, I know for a fact, that there are judges out there that are very, very uncomfortable with the thousands of foreclosures that they each let go through because they thought they were saving the economy and um, that is something that uh, that happens. We've had that happen periodically in one form or another throughout American history and American jurisprudence. But the, the fact is that eventually it's kind of like Winston Churchill said when we finally entered World War II and he was thanking Franklin Delano Roosevelt as president for our assistance and our entry into the war and he said that the United States has always been a friend to Britain and the United States always does the the right thing after it has exhausted all other options which people laughed about but I think that that statement really sizes up what we are going through and have been going through for 10 years as the judicial judicial system has attempted to address what seemed to be the exigencies created by uh, the bank and the assumption that the world would collapse if those banks had to take the hit. 
Gentlemen, I want to thank you again for being on the show, Charles Marshall and Dan Edstrom. And I will be back next week. A great deal. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by WW. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.